0: Last week as we studied through these precious words in James chapter 5, we focused our thoughts on the hopes and the joys that are ours when we experience God's blessed grace of healing. Whether that healing comes through common grace that's provided to our doctors or it be through that very special grace and on those very special occasions when the healing we experience comes directly from God's own divine hand. Now today, using these same precious words here in James chapter 5, I'd like to center our thoughts on the wonderful privilege that we have as God's beloved children of being able at any time to freely enter into His presence and enjoy an intimate conversation of prayer with Him. Listen to these words beginning in verse 13 of James chapter 5. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Some years ago, perhaps 10 or 15 years ago now, though I had been a Christian for many, many years and had prayed to God on an untold number of times, I began to question my real understanding of prayer. Was I doing it right? Were my prayers, as this verse tells us, were my prayers truly effectual? Or was I just simply voicing hope? Were my prayers truly effectual? So with that, I began to study and to beseech the Holy Spirit to give me a better understanding about prayer, both from my own side of the conversation, but especially from God's side of the conversation. And over the span of several weeks of study and fervent prayer, I was able to gain at least a small glimmer of the understanding God intends for me to have about prayer. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like for us to do that again over these next two, perhaps three messages. And it is my hope and my desire that you'll be blessed as much as I was blessed and am blessed by that study. My quest to better understand the nature of prayer began with these scriptures here that I've just read. And may I say that of all the verses in scripture that have to do with prayer, these verses have been some of the ones that have inspired and shaped my thoughts and my ideas and beliefs the most concerning this blessed privilege that we have of prayer. So may I read them again for us? Again, verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Then let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another, that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. May we begin by saying that, although most of us might think that we pray a lot, prayer really is not always the first thing that comes to our minds, especially in the rush of the daily activities of life, and especially if we have the kind of personality that seeks first for rational answers. And my personality has that first tendency. I seek for rational answers to all those ordinary matters of the day. Why would that be? It's because prayer itself is not rational. It's not logical. Prayer is of an altogether different realm than that of logic and rationale. Prayer, real prayer, takes place in the unseen, mysterious realms of God. Realms where rationale does not count for much, but where faith, hope, and love do. It's a realm where genuine faith, hope, and love can guide our human heart and mind to believe in and to trust in someone who is wonderfully unknowable. It's a realm where the diligent seeking to know that unknowable one counts for everything. And for those who do diligently seek him, they will surely be rewarded beyond measure. God assures of us of that in Hebrews eleven six, where he tells us, and listen, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me read that again for you. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. When by faith you and I reach into the realms of God and call upon His name and seek His intervention in the matters of our life, He will surely come to us. That's His promise. He will come to us and He will show us His way through those matters. But with all that being said, as I have observed my own responses over time, and the responses of others, I can clearly see that each of us still does struggle to take that step, that step to seek Him and to know Him and to believe Him and to fully trust that He really will answer our prayers. And because of that, prayer still remains much a mystery to all of us. And sometimes, at best, our prayers are our voicing of a hope for someone, just anyone, to help us. But it really ought not and must not be that way. We ought to know and to trust the fullness of the privilege and opportunity that is ours as beloved children of God. And the more that we allow God to reveal himself to us, our prayers will become effectual. So beginning this very moment, you and I ought to dedicate ourselves to the task of knowing more and more about the wonderful God that we serve and the wonderful privilege that we have to come to Him and pray to Him. We ought to be asking questions, both of God and of ourselves, finding out the intimate details of God's plan for prayer. I'm convinced, folks, that real prayer, once we grasp it, will be a wonderful and lifelong adventure for us. Understanding that is so important. Unfortunately, though, for most of us, our prayer times consist mostly of asking God for something, for our daily needs, for healing of bad health, ours or someone else's, or asking God to intervene in our family struggles or in our finances and on and on. And that is not a wrong thing to do because God wants us to do that. He encourages us to do that. He tells us in Psalm 46 that He is our ever-present help in our time of need. But as we seek God's help in our times of trouble, we must remember, listen, we must remember that that is not the first and only purpose of prayer. Our rushing headlong into asking God, help me, help me, help me with this situation is not the first and only purpose of prayer. And neither is it the most important reason to pray. You and I must instead allow our times of prayer to become an ongoing part of a growing relationship with God. An unending conversation with our loving Father, who we know really does care about our joys and our hurts and our needs, who we know will be kind and compassionate and will always want the very best for us, his beloved children. And yes, also, in addition to praying to the Father, we can pray to the Lord Jesus. And when we do that, our prayer is, to, is an intimate conversation with our beloved bridegroom who loves us more deeply than we could ever hope or imagine. The lover of our soul, Scripture calls him, who always comforts, provides, and protects his beloved bride from any peril at any cost to himself. And then also we can pray to the Holy Spirit. And when we do, it's a talk with an ever so intimate, loving comforter. A friend who knows not only our deepest thoughts, our hopes, and our dreams, but also knows the deepest thoughts and plans of God. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the Spirit of God knows the mind of God the Father, and the Holy Spirit does, and he will minister those thoughts to you and to me as we pray. And yes, God is always on his throne, high and holy and lifted up, And yes, he resides there in the most holy place, the holy of holies. But somehow, somehow, and this is something you and I need to grasp. At the same time, though he be there in all three persons, he is living and abiding deeply within the recesses of your and my own heart. Do you believe that? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at every moment abides within your and my heart. And living there, he is ever and always available for those intimate conversations that we'll have with him in prayer. One of my most delightful examples of the intimate conversation that God invites you and me to have with him is a memory that I have of uh, praying with Dr. Paul Cully. But Dr. Paul Cully was my spiritual hero, my greatest spiritual hero. I was privileged to pray uh, often with him. And it seemed, and listen, it seemed that each time we would begin to pray, Dr. Cully would start his prayer almost in mid-sentence, giving me the thought that he never really finished a prayer that he had already begun. His earlier conversation with God had not really ended. This new one was simply a continuation of one that he had begun earlier. He seemed to live in this attitude of prayer all of the time. Isn't that the most delightful thought about prayer that you could ever imagine? That you could remain in the presence of God, curled up there on his big knee, telling him about the happenings of your day, and him then listening attentively to every word that comes out of your mouth. Have you ever thought of that kind of relationship with God the Father? That God could easily and does easily manage all of the difficult matters of the whole world, while at the same time giving his full undivided attention to every thought that enters your mind, every word that you say. I do fear that most of us don't enjoy that kind of relationship with God. We envision him as being unreachable, untouchable. We act as if He doesn't know about our deepest sorrows, our hurting hearts. We find ourselves saying short, panic-type prayers over and over again as if we're trying to arouse His attention and get Him to hear us. And I've heard people say things like, well, I don't think that we are supposed to bother God with all those smaller matters of life. He expects us to take care of, of those sorts of matters ourselves. Listen. When we think those sorts of thoughts, it is evidence that we don't really know him very well. Others have said things like, we're not allowed to get up real close to God because God is holy. He's God. And no one has ever seen God's face and lived. Only Jesus has done that. And to some extent, that might have been so in the former days as perhaps with Moses, when Moses was not allowed to see God's face. But not so anymore, folks. Not so anymore. The moment that Jesus died there on the cross, that veil of the temple was rent. It was torn asunder, removing any and all barriers that are between us and God the Father, giving you and me complete and free and unhindered access into His presence. And now you and I are able to freely rush into God's presence as a little child would do without any concern for protocol or decorum, and we can be confident that we will be lovingly received by a gentle and loving Father who is ever and always attentive to every possible need that we might have. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Perhaps this is a good time that we pause and we rethink exactly who we perceive God to be. What exactly is our vision of the person and the character of God? What is your vision of who God is? What is my vision of who God is? If in our minds God is rigid, demanding, sometimes intolerant, then we really do need to change that vision because that is not who God is, and Scripture is clear on that. But how do we make that change? How do we make that change? How do we turn our vision of God, God the Father, from where it is, into a vision of a gentle and loving Father. Let me suggest that we begin by simply looking at the Lord Jesus. Jesus revealed the true nature and the true character of God the Father to us. And he plainly said so. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. In Jesus, God presented himself as being the kind of Father that truly would not only allow but would instead continually invite and encourage you and me to come straight into his throne room with even the most mundane of prayers. And even and especially if we have nothing at all to ask of him, just a visit, just a visit. Just as a little child wanting to curl up on her daddy's knee and watch his daddy take care of all the business of the day. Jesus said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. You and I are encouraged to come as simply as a child would come, unreservedly and without concern that Daddy's busy with other more important business of the world. While it may be difficult for us to envision you and I really being beloved little children of God, He really is our loving Father. Romans 8 tells us all about that. He is our Abba Father. That's a very intimate name for God. Listen to these words, Romans 8, beginning in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. You've heard it preached often, and it really is true. This word Abba is an expression of deep, loving intimacy, literally meaning daddy, in an affectionate expression of daddy. And in our accepting Christ as our personal Savior, a special, immediate, and eternal form of adoption took place. An adoption that cannot be undone. We immediately became a full and complete member of God's family. Joint heirs with Christ. Able to have and to enjoy all the benefits of being a son or a daughter of God. And able to enjoy all of the closest intimacies that a child would enjoy with his or her loving father. But none of that is of any value to you or to me until we step on forward and fully receive the joys of our newfound relationship as sons and daughters of God. And how foolish we are to continue to stand just inside His door, never fully entering into it, never fully entering into His presence. God is saying to us, you are my child. Come on in and let's get to know one another. You tell me about you and I'll tell you about me. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And folks, if you and I will do that, then the promises here in these scriptures that we will have joys unspeakable. Joys unspeakable. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Let me assure you and me that this is all true and the fullness of a loving family relationship stands waiting for us if we'll just go on past just entering the door of our salvation and go rushing on in to his presence but how do we begin what is our first step our first step is simple surrender yes we surrendered our souls to christ in salvation but while it might seem strange to hear that step of surrender is really not all that we need to do Jesus must also become Lord of our life. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is almost always spoken of as being the Lord Jesus? There are over 340 separate occasions in the New Testament where Jesus is called the Lord Jesus. And folks, that's not just incidental. And that's not just a title that goes along with his name. Lordship is a position of absolute authority, authority that is able to rule and command every thought and every movement of our being. There again in Acts 17 that I read at the beginning of the service, Jesus said to us, He, the Lord Jesus, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted times and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should see God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Think about those words, folks. Are not those words precious beyond imagination? Jesus created you and me for his own purposes and pleasure. And not only that, he determined exactly where we would live And when we would live there, the exact places and the exact times that we would live and move and have our being right where we are. He is that intimate. Let me say that again. He created you and me for his own pleasure. And then he put us in the exact place he wanted us to be. At an exact time, this day, this place, so that we can live and move and have our being in him. That's amazing. He is that intimate, that involved in who we are. And yes, again, he must absolutely be our Lord. Nothing less is an option. Now, does him being our Lord in any way diminish that gentle, loving, bridegroom relationship that we have with him? Not at all. Not at all. It enriches it greatly. We just need to get along with the Lord Jesus and say to him, Lord, I don't know how to do this, but I want to move on in to that kind of relationship with you. And I want to do it today. I want you to show me how to do that. And as you do that, let me also strongly encourage you to remain there quietly for long periods of time. And to do that often until it becomes your ordinary way of life. An enjoyable time of visiting with someone who loves you more than you could ever imagine. I'll stop there for today. And if the Lord wills, we'll continue with these words next week. Let me read these words from Acts 17 again. He, the Lord Jesus, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the exact times and the exact places where they would live, that they would seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. Let's pray.